Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Masters of Photography, online masterclasses with the greatest photographers in the world. We'll have a special offer for you on Masters of Photography courses later in the show. This is episode number 10. Today, we'd like to welcome Quinton Lake, a photographer who lives in the UK and who has embarked on a very interesting project. He is walking around the entire big island of the United Kingdom. That's about 10,000 kilometers. Quinton, thanks for joining us. Hi. Quinton, you are walking around the United Kingdom. That's right. Not just around the United Kingdom, but on the coast. Not just on the coast, but every little bend where it goes in and out and in and out. And this is what, about a 10,000-kilometer walk. Is that correct? That's right, yes. 10,000 kilometers, 6,000 miles, yeah. And how long ago did you start this? I started about two and a half years ago, so I'm just over halfway at the moment. So this is going to be about five years, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less? Yeah, maybe, yeah, it's going quite slow in Scotland, so maybe a little bit more. But yeah, five, five and a half years, yeah. And right now, we're not talking to you in some tent on a beach. You're at home in Cheltenham, which is actually about 40 minutes from where I live. You do this in, in stages. How long do you walk each time? Well, average is out about a week, but the longest would be about two to three weeks, and the shortest is about five days. So I walk from one train station to another, pretty much, where I can. So you go to a train station, then you have to go to the coast. That's right. Well, there's, yes, yes, there's sometimes a bus, and then so public transport, and then I'll, I'll walk and mostly camp in between times. Are, are you GPSing this to check the total distance? Because I would think that the distance of walking to and from the train stations to get to the coast is probably close to the distance you're walking around the island. Amazingly, there's lots of stations on the coast because often it's the flatter, flatter ground. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm GPSing it all. And uh, yeah, my, my estimates are about 20% off at the moment. So, it's, it's, so I think that the distance in the end might be quite a lot longer than I thought. So why are you doing this? What prompted you to, to embark on a project like this? You know, we talk about personal photo projects on the podcast, and it's great to have some ideas, you know, to shoot your neighbors, to shoot some events or you know, go to the local forest and all that. But I've never met anyone who's decided that I'm going to spend five years walking around an island to take pictures. <laughs> yeah, it kind of doesn't make sense. I mean, for me, it's the most interesting thing I, I can imagine. When I was when I was 20, I walked from Lansdowne to John O'Groats, which, which took three months. So that's about a uh, thousand miles, 1,600 kilometers. So Lansdowne is the very tip of Cornwall, which is in the southwest of the UK. Yeah. And John O'Groats is in Scotland? Yeah, so they're the two furthest points Right. Britain geographically apart and I did that avoiding roads as much as I could so through the wilder parts of Britain um, but I did that just for an adventure I was 21 I did it to raise money for charity and then and then um, since then I, I did photo projects as a separate thing and I traveled to about 70 countries doing kind of classic photo projects in exotic locations and, and then and, and then recently about seven years ago I combined my two passions I'd always go backpacking a couple of times a year with with photo projects and uh, i walked from the source of the thames very near uh, past um reading to, to london to the sea and i did it as a as a personal project and, I, and not only did i i love it but it actually the, the images i produced um sold quite well so it made sense both creatively and um and financially and then it, it seemed to be that uh you know r rather than a long walk means you kind of you come across um, beautiful things that you don't expect. So it's the unexpected moment that makes it very inspiring. 
And then after that, I did another river walk, the River Severn, which is um, Britain's longest river. That's 270 kilometres. That took quite a lot longer. Um, and that starts in Wales and then goes down Gloucestershire to the sea. And when I got to the sea, I kind of didn't want to stop. So I carried on a few days um, and then I realised how diverse and interesting that was because I thought it would all be the same. But I quickly realised it was the whole story of, of this island and the, the history and the, the and the architecture and the, and the people is always all told along the, the coast. So in a, in a single day, you can walk past a, a firing range and then walk over a very rugged, windswept moor. Then you can then you can pass people who are kind of wind windsurfing, and then you can go to a, an old house. And then you can pass the ruined village, and all that just happens in a few few moments. So it's um, it, there's never a never a dull moment, and, and so all the visual inspiration is just one layer upon another every day. You mentioned architecture. You are primarily an architectural photographer, is that correct? That's right. I, I trained as an architect and then not very wisely. I worked for a year and then became a photographer. But yeah, my, my commercially, I'm primarily an architectural photographer. And then I supplement that income with, uh, with fine art work based on what I'm doing now. And that kind of shows when you look at the photos that you've taken, there will obviously be links in the show notes to Quinton's website, photo galleries. A lot of the photos you take are of structures. They may be piers, they may be buildings, they may be electrical power line poles and things like that, or those statues that are near Liverpool on the beach. A lot of them are man-made things that you photograph. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I think that the British are very can be quite romantic about their landscape. You know, the images tend to look like a um, a picture you get on on a milk or, or or butter. It's like rolling fields and and cows and all very beautiful. And although that definitely does exist, the thing I find most fascinating is where you get you get the rolling fields and you get a massive nuclear power station right next to it. <laughs> and I mean, I really love that the painter uh, Paul Nash's work, and he was fascinated in in you know, the strange, surreal things you get in the landscape. Where you get some strange object that might be two thousand years old, and you get something modern that's bizarre. Um, and it's, it's that comparison. But yeah, I, I do see the world very geometrically. So, so I see the landscape as, as a composition. So were those previous trips, it sounds like those were all very consecutive. And so how did this idea scale up so, so much? Um, that's a good question. I mean, the, I think when you're conceiving of a artistic photo project, it can end up quite contrived. You, you could think, well, I'm going to now photograph every bus stop um, along a line or you might you might you might decide you're going to photograph a tree um on the outskirts of a town or, or a, a football um field i mean they can be good good ideas but then you almost become trapped by your own idea so what i wanted to do was to have such a wide reaching project that i don't feel any creative pressure to to decide what the critical um point i'm trying to make is until the end so at the end when I when I create a book or an exhibition, then I'll then I'll decide what point I want to make. But I wanted the freedom to to not do that just yet. It's interesting because last year or earlier this year, I bought a recent book by Martin Parr yes. called Remote Scottish Postboxes. Yes, yeah. I'll put a link in the show notes of one of the, the photos, and it's really a fascinating idea. Martin Parr is, I guess, you could call him a photographer of the banal, and he decided to drive around Scotland and take landscape photos where. The, the the foreground is a post box, one of those red British post boxes. But they're actually landscape photos that just happen to have post boxes photobombing them. That's right. I mean, he's he's a brilliant photographer, and they, um, one of his project that inspired me the most is called The Last Resort, 
which is about different seaside resorts ar- around the coast. So he has pictures of, you know, uh, children with ice cream and litter bins that are all the litters pouring out and sunburned shoulders and, and then people stuffing chips in their mouth and they're, they're, all, and they're highly saturated images of, of, of kind of British people at leisure on the beach. Looking at your photos and we'll link to the print shop on your website because you're actually funding this and funding your wife by selling prints uh, uh, that you've taken here. That's right, yeah. A couple of things stand out. One is that you'd kind of expect that there would be photos of the beach and the sea all the time, but there aren't that many. I mean, maybe half of them. There are plenty of photos of buildings that are just off the coast of nature that where you don't see water. Yeah. When you started, did you have an idea of what you were going to be shooting of a ratio of, let's say, sea to land? Or did that just happen organically? That happened organically. I mean, the the other sort of creative touchstone for me is um, Shugamoto, Japanese photographer, did these very beautiful seascape photos. So they're super abstract with a horizon line. And um, originally I thought that every picture would involve the sea. And I originally thought that it would be more um, kind of conceptually edited as I went along. But I felt that... um, there were too many interesting things that I was missing. And I, you know, every picture I post on, on Twitter or, or wherever, you know, I don't, I don't think that every one of them is, is of great artistic merit, but I do think they're interesting in that there's, um, there's so many different stories of the coast. So because it's taken me so much time to do this, if I was just to only take a picture of a very limited creative range, I, I, you know, I feel that I'm just missing out too much. And it's, and there's not too, and I also began to realize that the, uh, the story, uh, just on a documentary level, is is interesting as well as on an artistic level. So I just felt, it's an answer to your question, I felt I was missing too much out to just concentrate on the sea. Sure. And as you said, other people have done it. Um, Joel Morowitz did a series of photos, I think he called them Sea and Sky or Bay and Sky. That's right, yeah. When he was up by Cape Cod. Yeah. And they're all very fascinating. Yes, but are. it's true that if you're going to do that for 10,000 kilometers, you might get a little bit bored of shooting the same thing and there's the interest of the different light and weather yeah. and colors but after a while they do look a lot alike well, although that's true to an extent i'm still surprised how i keep seeing new 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 forms and patterns and, sh- and shapes j- just with the horizon so at the end i definitely will have a, a series that's very abstract just with the horizon and the sky and the sea but especially because i'm walking in all weathers and all seasons through the winter you get these completely black pitch black skies with the hail and the, the snow and it's it's a it's an element it's a beautiful incredible thing which is very unexpected so I, i'm continually surprised that oh there's another type of seascape i've never seen before you're missing the heat wave well you're feeling the heat wave where you are now but you're missing it on the coast although you would be far, far enough north where it probably wouldn't be so hot but were you out walking in february when that very very cold storm hit us early this year Yes, I was. Yeah. No, I mean, I've, I've had some filthy, filthy winters with, with the, uh, the rain and the, and the snow and the storm. Yeah. 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 And also, and it's, it's, it's very, very challenging from an adventure perspective because you, you wake up with the head torch and then you walk for two hours with the head torch. And then, then you have a sort of seven and a half, eight hours of, of daylight. And then you then I walk another two hours with the head torch at night, and the light levels are so low. Like even in the middle of the day, you can be on sort of four thousand ISO, and you're going, "Is, is my camera broken?" And it's just the gloomy, the, the gloomy clouds. But 
although it sounds like quite masochistic, I'm particularly proud of the winter images because they have this sort of elemental stormy feel, which, you know, you can only really do that by just getting out there and trying your luck. Well, that's part of the story, isn't it? Yes. The, the fact that you're doing this at different times, that you're not waiting until the spring and the fall when the weather's perfect, that you are facing up to the elements every time you go out there. Yeah, I actually find it much harder. The weather like now when it's blue sky and beautiful is that it, the pictures can look like a postcard. It's, it's very attractive, but it's, it's quite difficult to find, you know, any authorship in that kind of picture. When you go out, are you timing things in, in such a way that you think, okay, I know that if I walk, you know, four hours at I will be at this point, like perhaps this scenic point, and I want to make sure that I get there when the light is at, you know, this level at this time of day. Or is it more exploratory, just I'm going to get up, I'm going to head in this direction and see what comes? Uh, both. I mean, sometimes there's a particular landmark that I'm really keen to explore, and I'll, I'll plan it really, I'll use the the photographer's ephemeris app and website mm -hmm. to work out the sun angle for the particular uh, time of day. And, and I'll really carefully plan it. And then sometimes I just, um, I won't do that at all. So, so, so both, both wise, but I, I but I do um, often estimate my journey time and plan, you know, I might not have my lunch so that I can reach a certain location and then I'll, I'll eat later or, you know, I'll, I'll vary the days. Or I might, if it's interesting day photographically, I might do, six hours of photography and then walk into the night on a bit which isn't so interesting so each day is quite elastic like that do you ever find yourself pausing and saying you know wow like this was a great location i'm going to spend two days here or do you have more of a rigid schedule because you know that you need to get somewhere by a certain time unfortunately i i do have a rigid schedule i mean if if i there are days that i find really inspiring but then the following day i need to make up the distance so I average 26 kilometers a day, which allows for three hours of photography. And then, and then if, if, I, if either the going is difficult or I do more pictures, then I have to make it up the next day, which makes the next day so that sometimes I walk up to 45 kilometers a day. Um, and then because I always have a, a, you know, when I get back, I've got, a, I've got my, my family to consider and my clients' deadlines to consider. So I, I have to return for a certain date. So unfortunately, um, there have been some beautiful places that, you know, if I was in my 20s, I would have just hung out there for a few days. I can't do that. <laughs> but I think some, but some days are very much the main objective is just walking just all day. And some days, you know, if the weather is, is, is fantastic, I do much, do much more photography. So I do have quite a bit of leeway, three and six hours a day to do photography. There's also the flip side of that, which is, I mean, I love that this is such a, a broad, open-ended project. It gives you a lot of opportunities, but there must be also a lot of frustrations. Like, what happens when you get somewhere and you're like, wow, this area it, it is just not what I expected, or I, I'm not liking the photos that I'm I'm taking? Because there's, there's you know, that amount of, of what you're bringing to it rather than just, oh, I'm showing up and taking pictures, which a lot of people do. I think, I mean, that's a really kind of deep question about what makes good photography. I mean, it's very, very true. I mean, it's, um, you know, you can have, you can be in a good mood, the landscape can be fascinating and the, the pictures are, are not good. Um, but I mean, to me, that's what different, differentiates an amateur and a professional photographer is complete dispassionate analysis of your own photos. You know, you might have spent 3,000 pounds traveling somewhere and you might have been exhausted you might have had some disease and and yet the yeah. photo can still be bad but yet you might you might do a truly 
profound picture in your own kitchen. So that that's um, but but going back to what you're talking about a location that it bothered me at the beginning, but now I could, if I have three or four bad days where it's not very creative, I, I'm relaxed about that. That's just that just happens sometimes, and then I know that. At some point, it might be two weeks ahead or three weeks ahead, there will be a day where I'm just so happy to be alive. And there's been so many experiences which have been astonishing. So it, it kind of balances out. That's a great advantage of the scope. That's right, yeah. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll go a little bit further around the United Kingdom with Quinton Lake. Masters of Photography is a unique online learning platform that brings together some of the world's most acclaimed photographers, the Masters. You can enjoy an unprecedented insight into the way these photographers work during intimate lessons that capture their knowledge, ethos, and philosophy. I've taken the Masters of Photography course with Joel Myrowitz, one of my favorite photographers, and I was impressed by his passion for photography and his desire to transmit his knowledge to others. With more than five hours of video and 34 lessons, Joel Myrowitz discusses technique, inspiration, and his career, and gives some practical tips about shooting in the street, taking portraits, and even still-life photography. I strongly recommend this course with Joel Myrowitz, and Masters of Photography has a special offer for PhotoActive listeners. Get 5% off any course with the code PHOTOACTIVE. Go to mastersof.photography and enter the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE or use the link in our show notes. That's mastersof.photography. I really enjoyed this course, and I think you will too. You said a couple of times something that I, I find interesting and that I raise often. You mentioned about... Um, that you can take a great picture in your kitchen yeah. uh, and, and the people will spend a fortune to go to an exotic location and they expect that they're going to get great photos, but people ignore taking photos, not necessarily in the kitchen, but around their house, in their town, in their village, wherever it is. Yes. And, and I think what you're doing is a great example that you don't need to be in an exotic location. Granted, the English coastline can be exotic in some areas, you know, the, the White Cliffs of Dover and and some of the areas in Devon and all that. Yeah. But what you're showing in your photos is that it's possible to take really interesting photos in areas that people would consider rather banal. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, most of the places I'm, I'm going to, most many millions of people could get to easily on a weekend or even after work. And, and, and yes, yeah. I mean, almost I think it's an advantage to just, um, you know, go to, say, the very nearest geometrically nearest piece of coastline and just see what's there even if it's not famous because the famous sites tend to um there's quite a lot of disadvantages i mean there's lots of people it's been highly photographed there's a expectation i mean the there's i mean take the white cliffs of dover for example is a really interesting example because it's been so highly portrayed by artists through, through centuries and this particular you know i i love it being there but i mean it's it's impossible to see it freshly. You take a picture and it looks like someone else's picture or a different painter's. It's it's easier to be um, to be unselfconscious if you go to an unknown location. So, what is your mental process when you're doing this during the day? Is walking for you a meditative activity? Are you listening to music? Do you always have your camera in your hands, waiting to catch something? How how do you go about this? Um, great questions. I mean, all of them can change, but. Most of the time, I generally enjoy walking. I do find it very meditative. I mean, I've read quite a lot about different reasons why people walk, and some people sort of walk to escape sorrow, or they walk to to sort of, sort of kind of find some kind of oblivion. But for me, it's neither of those things. I just I just find it yeah, it just makes me happy. It's quite meditative. Um, 
and most of the time I use a use a I keep I keep a Peak Design Capture clip on my backpack shoulder. I mean, it's really important that the camera is always there. If you have to faff with a bag, take a heavy bag off. You know, most of the time you go, I, I can't be bothered, so it has to be there all the time. Um, I, d- I don't. Um, when I'm suffering, tired, exhausted, I listen to music um, or listen to the radio. Um, but I, I only do that as, a, as almost a last resort if, if I'm really need distracting. Um, I like to be present in in, in the moment of it. Um, but of course, but sometimes I you know I have um, blisters, my legs ache, I've, everything hurts. It's raining. It's my my clothes are completely wet through to the skin, and and most of my attention is just just to, is just to put one foot in the front of the other and the idea of creativity is like ha 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 that's that's not gonna end the, the bag is in double sealed in in the backpack um and then i might grab a couple of shots during the five minutes of the day when it's not raining because the, the sky clears and and so it's it varies a lot whereas if it's a good day I'll, I'll keep the camera out all the time so we don't really talk much about gear on this podcast but this is the perfect time to talk about gear sure you had to create a photography kit that was flexible and versatile and extremely light. And we'll link to a page on your website where you show all the elements you have and how much they weigh. And your photography equipment is only about three and a half kilos. How did you determine what you were going to use and how did you get to that point? And did you start out with different bits of gear that you dropped and or added other gear as you went on? Uh, yes, I did. I mean, I've, I'm, my, my style of photography, I do a lot of abstract compressed landscapes so if i had to pick one lens it would be a telephoto lens so so if i had to, like i've done projects in the past where all i took was a telephoto lens so it's kind of the 70 to 300 range is is where i was what i enjoy the most so that was a given that had to be in there and then um if i'm if i i mean the wide the wider level it was is a much harder compromise because ideally i'd have a 17 millimeter tilt shift and i'd have like a a standard zoom something like a 24 to 70 those would be the three lenses that i would carry around in an urban situation um but i I ended up choosing a 16 to 35 and then missing out that middle range so i've got a wide zoom and a long zoom so and that 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 was the best way to deal with the lenses and then tripod wise i've um, I mean, I could write a book about these small tripods because mm-hmm. uh, I've tried the, the tiny desktop tripods, but then although they're light, generally there's too much foliage. You want to get above um, plants and you, you need to get up sort of 50 centimeters and full size tripods uh, um, to carry the, the quite the camera itself is quite heavy with, with the lens. It's a, you know, it's a kilo, two, just under two kilos for the long lens. So you need quite a sturdy tripod. And then to have a, you know, a full-size tripod that big is going to be at least two kilos. So I, I've discovered this Jitso carbon fiber. It's only 50 centimeters high, so you have to sit down and squat to, to use it. But it's enough to get to get over the plants. So there's, there's almost no circumstances I can't use that. And that weighs half a kilogram. Um, so, so that and then but then it was also being very so i cut out everything so a normal camera strap you don't need that i just use a piece of 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 um of high strength cord which is four grams um i don't if, if the lens doesn't need the lens protection for waterproofing i d- don't use that um the camera case the padded case i i made one out of insulation foam because even the lightest one is still of quite a few hundred grams 
And then the waterproofing case, I use a Cuban fiber case, which is 24 grams. I mean, anything that's sold for photography is going to be, you know, the, the, the bag and the case ends up weighing more than the camera. So the actual, and then the camera, it is heavy. You know, it's the uh, 5 DSR, so it's a 50 megapixel full frame camera. But I, I absolutely need that to produce the large prints I make, which are like a meter and a half square. Right. And, and many people say, well, why don't you use mirrorless or why don't you use a smaller format? And um, it's mostly about the lenses because once you factor the lenses in, it doesn't really save that much. And to me, the, the, the quality loss, because I really like an optical viewfinder, you know, you can absolutely nail what you're seeing. It's just a, a probably a, um, I'm probably a generation where it's just a step too far to look at digital, but creatively I find it better. Um, and I've extensively test, tested these these other formats to see if they would work for me, but they they wouldn't. Well, and also, you know, people are thinking of of, of gear bags and weight and all that. And you're also carrying uh, everything you need. You're carrying food. You're carrying clothing. You're carrying uh, a tent of some sort. And so. I mean, in Scotland, you can sometimes need up to seven to ten days of food. I mean, it's uh, it's it's very remote. And some of the peninsulas, there's there's no inhabitation whatsoever. So. And, and it's about a kilogram per day um, is, is what the what, you know, 800 grams to one kilo, depending how much you need. And if you're backpacking, you need a lot of three and a half to four thousand um, yeah, um, calories. So it's, you need quite a lot of food. Um, mm -hmm. So so it accordions up and down. So I can be carrying up to 18 to 20 kilos. But most of that is food. Half of that is food. What about your workflow? You're, you're shooting your pictures. You're putting them on an SD card. Do you send them to the cloud to have a backup? Do you have an extra backup drive? What do you do to manage your photos? You're obviously not processing them until you get back home. Yeah. So what do you do to make sure you don't lose your photos? That's um, I haven't found a solution which I like, to be honest. I mean, there's, there's, there's rarely a mobile phone signal, and there's certainly not a data signal. Um, you know, a single image I take with, the, with my camera is, is 76 gig, and I generally take about 300 a day. So the, the volume of images, the data is massive. So, so no, no, no cloud system like that works. I have very fast broadband here and I use a cloud backup when I'm back in the studio, but nothing in the field works. Um, and I haven't found any um, remote drive system which has a high enough capacity. I mean, I need at least um, two terabytes to be backed up during any one leg. And, and I haven't found anything that, that works for me. So I just use the SD card and, and store it and hope for the best. And so far, I haven't had any failures. But I, I, I could, I mean, my camera has the facility to take double cards. And I could read the data to two sources. But I hope I'm not going to regret this next time I go out. But I've, ne I've never had an <laughs> SD card failure for about 10 years. I mean, the early cameras failed quite a bit, but the recent ones, they haven't. Um, so I, I just go, you know, for just five gram SD card, that's, and I just, I just take masses, you know, I have, um, you know, 10, um, 64 gig cards. So that, that will last me for, for about 10 days before I need to back it up. And it, it, the few occasions where I need more, I, I might, um, I, I might have a, I might take a, a laptop with a hard drive on a rest day and do some processing and checking, which I might send to myself. There's a few things I might do like that. Well, one thing about this workflow that's interesting is that it doesn't sound like you're doing a lot of reviewing on the way. So you're able to have some time between when you shoot something and review it. Do you find that to be helpful or do you find that you like being able to look at things faster? Do you do any reviewing on the camera or is it just 
I've, I, I've shot the images and now I can look at them much later. I, I don't review on camera. No, I, I check okay. the histogram. I check to make sure that I'm not burning out the highlights. And right. um, if there's something dynamic, I check to make sure that I've composed it right. But I won't. Like, I, I won't um, sit in the tent and check out what I've done during the day. But that's mostly about battery life. I mean, battery life is, is the killer for me because mm. um, solar just isn't practical in the UK. There's not enough sun. Um, so I'm carrying, you know, big battery packs and some, sometimes they're, I don't know if I've got one around, but you know, that half, half kilo battery packs, it's, it's a, it's a, the, and the weight for that. So the, I don't do anything that requires power that I don't need to do, but, but, but also creatively, I, I like just to treat it like film and, and to just shoot and then review it later. And then answer your question about the time I do prefer uh, not too long, but I like, I like a week to two weeks to, to sort of just decide whether that was good and then see it afresh, but it's close enough that I can remember the details of what was happening. Yeah. If you wait a little bit like that, then you'll look back at the photos and you'll have memories of them and you'll say, ah, yes, I remember that one, but it won't be the same as if you did it right after or the next day. It'll be more of a distant memory that's blended into your feelings of a specific walk or a specific stage. That's, that's right. I, I find it more, yeah, definitely more helpful to, to whereas it, if it's sort of two or three months past, which I've done on previous projects, it's, you've almost moved on and it's not, it's not, it's too far away. I was just going to point out that um, nowadays that time period between shooting and reviewing, that almost sounds like a luxury because so many, so many people, and uh, we're guilty of this too sometimes, like I want to see what I got or someone needs me to go through these and review these and, and cull them down. And that brings me to another question, which is when you do get home, how many images are you working with? Is it this monumental task that, oh my gosh, now I have to go through this whole this whole batch is that without a question of doubt the thing that i find hardest about this project is processing the images i mean almost physically as well i mean there's just so many of them i mean each day of walking takes a day of editing for sure so i, I take on the average is is about 300 images per day and um you know i, I normally do sort of uh it will take me three to four hours to get it down to kind of a set of keepers that I kind of like. And then it will take me another three or four hours to finesse those. And, and then, then I'm, then I'm captioning them and I'm uh, putting them on a blog and the whole process, um, you know, easily takes 10, 12 hours per day. And, and I do find that daunting. I mean, right at the moment I've got a 14 day backlog and I keep getting assignments and, and, and I don't know when, I don't know when I'm going to do that. And that feels kind of a pressure. I can sort of guess the answer to this, but do you ever go back and, and, and re-review things or is that just from a practical standpoint difficult because you're, you're, you're basically always moving forward in the project? If I've got like a, if it's a, a very important um, magazine article or something like that, I might, I know I double check that I haven't left any dust spots in the image. And then sometimes I'll go, actually, you know, I think I might change the the tone of this. I mean, I'm, I'm open to thinking that it could be better, but what happens more often is pictures that I thought were good. I no longer think are good. So kind of my top set of best hundred images from the projects that they, they change all the time. So a couple of questions about the photos themselves. Why have you chosen to make all of the pictures square? Well, I think it, um, I mean, most of my pictures are, are dealing in some degree with, uh, with, with geometry and, and abstraction. And I've, for me, the square format, it lends itself much, much better to work in, in abstraction. And, um, 
and and st- stillness and the sense of serenity is something I really try and get across in in my pictures, especially with this project. So it was those two things together. So it was, it was the stillness and serenity with the, the with the geometry, which uh, which are the things that I enjoy the most. I don't. I, I've been looking through your galleries, and I haven't come across a single photo in black and white. I do. I, do, I mean, sometimes it's. I mean, definitely. I sometimes I, I uh, an image would be better in a normal format panoramic and sometimes images would definitely be better black and white that's for sure but it's, it's really about unity of the project consist consistently so it's slightly more recognizable there's no, there's no doubt that there are times when when you know who knows in the future i may rework some in black and white but just just at this stage it, it's it's i just wanted it to have a have a unity definitely my next project will not be one-to-one it won't be square (laughs) (laughs) you just haven't gotten around to the edge that is in black and white that's that's the issue that that is the issue (laughs) yes you've been going up the west and that's the sunny side and when you get to the to the lee side side, um, things will be a little bit different although i imagine some of those scotland locations in the storms are, are probably like almost like black and white what a lot of people do say some of the pictures they say they assume it is black and white i mean often the, you're very true there's these the storm ones look 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 monochromatic yeah i mean often people say that they're they're monochromatic but they're not mm-hmm. yeah there there are a number of your photos that look almost black and white but then you can see the color coming through yeah i mean I, for, for me that's if someone looks at my pictures and goes Especially when they're printed and goes, is that a is that a print? Is that real? And then they're, they're trying to work that out. Then I then I think, well, I've, that's 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 what I want. That's what I want. I want it to be on the edge of of, of reality like that. I see that as a as a as a good thing if people are working it out. So I, I, I like to have a little bit of color so that people can can if they really look at it for a long time, they they realize it's a photo. When you're processing, do you find yourself doing a lot of work on your keepers or? Uh, minimal amounts sometimes it's it's a great deal but it, it's it's mostly because i can't decide which tonal or color treatment i prefer so often mm-hmm. i might take a keeper and do a um do a virtual copy of it maybe four or five times and process them all differently I, i'm kind of i'm quite bad at I, I can only tell if it's if it's good or better by having a binary comparison so i'll bring two pictures up and then I'll go, is this one better or is this one better? And if I can't work it out, I'll ask my wife. And if she can't work it out, then my son will come in. He's really good at just going, that one. And he's often, seems to be right. But it's, it's, it's very, um, but, but in terms of types of work I do, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll clone out dust. I'll do, I'll do tone and levels. I'll do some selective sharpening. I'll do quite a lot of gradient masking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't carry any filters. I do with a raw file, you can get a good, dynamic range in post by using a gradient filter. Um, I, I, would, I won't really add or remove objects. Um, so those are the kinds of, of processes I'm, I'm doing. It's more, I have, it takes time because I'm doing so many subtle varieties, which I can't decide which one is best. So as I said, we'll link in the show notes to your website and to the place where people can buy prints. I would strongly recommend looking. These are some beautiful prints and I'm going to buy one, but I haven't decided which one because there are so many. It's actually quite difficult. Sometimes you'll look at a photographer's website. They've got a hundred photos and you can pick out a few, but I'm looking at yours and there are so many that it's really hard to choose. After this is over, are you planning to release a book or an encyclopedia or <laughs> I'm thinking a hundred <laughs> volumes of all the photos in in order of as you've walked around the island. Well, that would be. I mean, they're all on the blog. But I, I think the, the dream would be to do a four volume book. 
which would be divided into kind of quadrants of the island. I mean, generally, books about the British coast, they, they're, they're thematic based on uh, on different factors. And I, I quite like not to do that. So you have different things following on. I quite like just ge- geographical areas. Um, and uh, and maybe because I, I write a diary as well. So I quite like to tell a story of it in a separate kind of book. And then uh, the dream, although I haven't planned any of this yet, would be to have a an, a traveling exhibition that would go would move around the coast to the places where I've been, and that would show the pictures of each area. Say in Cornwall, it would show the Cornish pictures, and in Scotland, the Scottish pictures. Or would it be an exhibit that would show a, a selection of all of them everywhere? I think it would be like the very best kind of sixty images that would would travel around. But I mean, I'd be I'd be open to. I mean, the one thing I've had absolutely zero time to do because of the amount of time this project takes is do any kind of hustling and talking to institutions. And um, you know, I've, I've had some interest, but it's all happened organically. I'm really bad at kind of going out and calling people up and saying, "Hey, let's do this." So, I mean, I I, I thought by this point I would have done that, but I, I've, I just there aren't enough hours in the day, so I've accepted that I'll finish the project and then do the hustling. And so, what's next? After this, this is a huge project. You're not going to walk around Africa or Antarctica, are you? Uh, I do want to go to Antarctica. I've been to the Arctic three <laughs> times, and I have a big yearning in that area. But but I think this this project will complete, and I think the creative completion of this project will probably take two years. I think um, where where editing. You mean after you've finished walking and shooting? After I finished walking and shooting, I think right. to, to 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 properly conceive of the, the book and to edit it to make to make an exhibition to hopefully partner with different institutions so it has a wide audience. I mean, after all this effort, I want to, to get out there. And um, and then I think I would, because, you know, I, I plan smaller scale walks for my own pleasure so I don't go crazy during that time. But but after, after that, I, um, I would like to do a project in Antarctica, but I, I actually really can't think beyond this. But I know from previous journeys that the come down after a big project is pretty massive. I mean, when, when I, I the, the two times I've been to the Arctic and you can't, you suddenly come back and you've been eating dehydrated food for months and you're suddenly back and you're in with buildings and the come down is, is huge. So you, you do need, you do need to prepare for that, for the, for these things. But uh, I'm, I'm hoping that um, just by editing and reliving the pictures and, and I'll, I'll set up some program of modest travels so that I, I still feel, because I mean, at the moment in the corner is my backpack packed to go. And that's such a beautiful feeling. And you know, five years of my life is always just around the corner is, is an adventure. That's a really, it's, it's a life affirming feeling. So I don't want to lose that. I think the most interesting takeaway for the rest of us is what you said about the ability to just take good pictures anywhere, that anyone can just go to the coast and walk for an hour. They don't have to walk a thousand miles, or in my case, the Avon River, which is just around the corner. And there are always interesting things if you just keep your eyes open. That, that's right. I mean, I think any, you know, be following a road, following a river, or just drawing a line on a map and following it. I mean, any um, any kind of, it's like a road movie and you, you, create, you create your own narrative. I think that's rather than, picking an interesting site and going to it and then often being disappointed, you know, like, like the cliche that, you know, the beauty of the journey is in the, is in the, is in the journeying. It's not the, it's not the destination. In a way, I think a lot of photographers would look at something like that and they would be looking for a spectacular photo rather than stopping and saying, what can I photograph in this location? That's going to be interesting. That's right. And, 
they'll go around the corner of a road and they'll go around a bend and they'll keep waiting for something that's not there instead of photographing what is there and trying to make something interesting of what is there. Yes, very much so. Yeah. yeah. And I think especially in the kind of some some photo magazines, some photo websites, it, it kind of perpetuates a certain aesthetic of a certain i mean the um, the u.s national parks i mean i i, I love them but there's a there's a it's, it's a particular um aesthetic and way the same uh, monuments are re-photographed and re-photographed and it's 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 um i don't think it's a healthy thing creatively because it's it, it's you know you, you get the kit you re you watch the video online you learn how to do it i mean it's a good craft skill to develop but it's not it's not developing a a, a, a proper individual creative vision of the world. It's a lot of trophy hunting. Yes, it's trophy hunting, yes. Thank you very much for joining us, Quinton. You're off again very soon. Where are you heading? You're up in Western Scotland, aren't you? That's right. In Inverary, it's the, the biggest, the Kintyre Peninsula, the biggest peninsula in Scotland. So yeah, next seven days time, I'm off again, yeah. Well, enjoy the rest of the trip and we'll be keeping our eyes on this over the next couple of years. And, you know, T.S. Eliot in one of his poems said, that you shouldn't say farewell, you should say fair forward. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. So that's what I will say to you. Fair forward. Enjoy the rest of the trip. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So it's time for our snapshots of the week. Jeff, what have you got? I have a MacBook Pro that has the Thunderbolt slash USB-C ports, and I need to get photos onto it. So in order to do that, uh, of course, because it's a MacBook Pro, we need lots of dongles. So I bought the verbatim USB-C pocket card reader. What's nice about it is that it supports UHS-2 memory cards. So if you have those and your camera supports them, it's capable of much faster transfer times than most SD card readers. It's also really pretty cheap. For about $17, you get the performance of a SanDisk one that was $50 when the MacBook Pros first came out. So it's fast, it's good, it's compact, it has a micro SD and an SD slot, and uh, it works great. Kirk? This week I've got a book. Not a book of photography, but a book about cameras. It is called Retro Cameras. It's written by John Wade, published by Thames and Hudson. Now, I'm not a camera collector, I'm not a gearhead, but there is something interesting to look at old cameras and to see what they were like, to see how they worked. I mean, I had my first camera in the late 1970s, so this is already... A relatively modern SLR at the time. But you can look back here and, and, and see the way people were shooting pictures a hundred years ago. My favorite type of camera, and in fact, if I were to shoot film today, I would want to get one of these cameras like the old Mamaya, where you have to look down into it and you have the crank on the side. I've always liked that position of shooting a camera like at waist level and looking down to frame it. And a few years ago when I had an Olympus what was it, OM, whatever it was, the Olympus Digital SLR that I had a few years ago, it had a, a back panel that would tilt and I could use it that way. And that's really interesting when you're shooting something close to the ground, like cats, for example, or flowers. And I like that approach to shooting. I, I like that you're looking at something rather than having the camera in front of your eye. In any case, this is the subtitle to this is The Collector's Guide to Vintage Film Photography. And it it claims to tell you a little bit how you would use some of these cameras, but it covers things like stereo cameras and miniature cameras and those little cameras with the bellows that open up. And I think it's just charming to look at how cameras have changed so much over the years. 
of course, now you just compare that to an iPhone or any other smartphone, and it's just so different, yet it does the same thing. It's not an expensive book. It's not going to prompt me to start collecting cameras, but it's just interesting to have a little nostalgic look at photography. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Don't forget that you can get 5% off any course at Masters of Photography with the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. That's PHOTOACTIVE in one word. Go to mastersof.photography or use the link in our show notes. Until next week, thanks again for listening.